Well, if, if you do have a Bible with you, I do invite you to open to this letter of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament towards the end of the New Testament. So find your place there, chapter 1. And let me read the opening verses 1 through 4. You can follow in your copy there, or it's on the screen right behind me. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power, having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Welcome to the book of Hebrews. The author whose identity we don't know for sure wastes no time with introductions, with personal greetings or salutations. He wastes no time with that because this is no ordinary letter. This is no ordinary epistle of the New Testament. In fact, it is unique among the letters of the New Testament in that it is actually a sermon, a homily. It's a sermon sent as a letter to be read in the assembled worship of the congregation, like we are today, a congregation about whom the author, or we could call him a pastor, was concerned. That's the uniqueness of this letter. It is a sermon written as a letter sent to a congregation to be read. At the end of this letter, sermon, that's what the author himself calls what he's written. He calls it a word of exhortation. And that's what the letter of Hebrews is, is a word of exhortation. That's in chapter 13 and verse 22 is where he, at the end of the letter, says, I've written to you this, I want you to listen to this word of exhortation that I've written very briefly to you. So as such... As a sermon, as a word of exhortation, this is a carefully crafted sermon letter to persuade his hearers and us to draw near to God and to hold fast to Christ. As a sermon, he skillfully weaves together exposition of Scripture, explanation of Scripture, and exhortation from his exposition of Scripture. He, he weaves these together, and they're, they're really inseparable. You can't separate them. We will see that in this letter, sermon, he will give an unparalleled theology of the superiority of the Son, Jesus. Unlike really anything we have in the rest of the New Testament, he will give this great theology of the Son, especially his priesthood, his high priesthood, 
We learn that in the book of Hebrews, really nowhere else. But this tremendous unparalleled theology of the Son serves His exhortation. You have to hold them together. That is His pastoral purpose to hold fast to Christ. So last Sunday I gave you my one-line summary of the message of the book or the sermon that we call the book of Hebrews. Here it is, one-line summary of the message. Hold fast to Christ because He is better. (laughs) That's what this sermon is about. Hold fast to Christ. Draw near. Don't let go because Christ is better. He is so much superior to everything and anything else. Where else will you turn? It seems that this congregation to whom he's writing this sermon is in danger of compromising their commitment to Christ. They have become spiritually dull, slow to grasp the full significance of Christ. Perhaps they feel marginalized in their society, pushed to the edge, ashamed, They have experienced some form of suffering or persecution in the past, and it appears to be on the horizon again, and they are in danger of letting go. They're in danger of falling away. He's concerned for their spiritual condition. So he writes this sermon to exhort them to hold fast, hold fast, persevere, draw near, because Christ is so much better. So we, this morning, many years later, we need this sermon. We need this letter. It is written for us, in God's grace, to behold the superiority and the all-sufficiency of Christ, both in who He is and what He has done, what He has accomplished and secured for us, so that we will hold fast till the end. This is a beautifully written sermon. May we hear it. That's what he tells us at the end. I want you to listen to this word of exhortation. So we're going to, over these weeks, we're going to slowly listen to it. Now, as I read those first four verses, the author, as I said, in his sermon here, immediately confronts us with the superiority and greatness of the Son, Jesus. He gives no personal introduction in order for us immediately to feel the full force of his sermon's main point, right at the beginning. And that main point is the superiority of the Son over everything. So these first four verses we call a prologue, a prologue before he kind of starts unfolding his sermon. He is giving us really the main point here and the key themes in this four verses. These first four verses really are essential for understanding the entire letter. They, they give us kind of the interpretive key for understanding everything he's going to say. They give us the key themes The superiority of the Son, His finished work, His exaltation. Now, these first four verses are really 
just one sentence in Greek, one sentence composed of three main clauses. You remember your grammar, and I won't belabor the grammar here, but there's one sentence with three main clauses, and what we're doing here in these opening weeks is just looking at each clause of the first sentence, the prologue, because in here, as I said, is the key to understanding the letter. So the three clauses all point us to the superiority of the Son. Let me, let me give you a title for the three clauses of this prologue. One, the first clause, the superior revelation in the Son. Saw that last week. The superior revelation in the Son. It's the first clause. Verse, verse 1 and half of verse 2. Second clause, the superior person of the Son. Who is this Son? Who is He? We're going to see today. Second part of verse 2 and all of verse 3. And then the third clause, how He finishes in verse 4, the superior exaltation of the Son. So the superior revelation in the Son, the superior person of the Son, and the superior exaltation of the Son. You can see, it's all focused on the Son and His supremacy, His superiority. Now, if you look back at that first clause, the superior revelation of the Son, that's what we saw just briefly last week. We introduced the whole book or letter, and then we ended by looking at that first clause the superior revelation that comes in the Son. So here's my one-line summary of what he was teaching in that clause. It is this. God's self-disclosure in the Son, God's revelation or self-disclosure in the Son is the climax and fulfillment of all previous revelation. God's disclosure of Himself, His revelation, His Word speaking in the Son is the climax It's the fulfillment of all prior, previous revelation. So our author here, really, he announces his basic premise right at the word go, and he's going to develop this in his letter. That in the Son, we have the definitive, final, complete revelation that brings to fulfillment all prior revelation. So we we looked at that and thought on that last Sunday As he notes, the author does these two stages of God's revelation, that which was long ago, previously, we call that now the Old Testament, which is equally God's Word. God spoke there a variety of ways by the prophets to the fathers. It's God's Word, God speaking. That's the first stage. But now the climactic final stage has come in the Son. That prior stage is equally God's Word, authoritative. But it's incomplete. And there's a progression of God's revelation that has now climaxed in His Son. The Son fulfills all prior revelation. And notice the great difference here. God communicated, God spoke in the past in a variety of ways in the prophets or by the prophets. But now, now in this final Climactic, fulfilled stage, he has spoken in his Son. The Son is not just another prophet, one more prophet that gives us a few more books. The Son himself is the revelation. He has spoken in his Son. 
He, the person of the Son, and what He has done is the final revelation of God. He is, to use the language of John, the apostle, He is the Word become flesh so that we behold His glory. Oh, how different this is. So here's the question now. Why is this Word this revelation in the Son, why is it the final climactic revelation of God? That is, I said last week, there's no more stages after this. This is the final stage. Now, this stage is going to be completed when He comes, be consummated, but there's no other stage that's coming after Jesus. Why, why is this the final revelation in the Son? The answer is because of who the Son is, who He is. And that's the second clause of the prologue. He's going to show us now who is the Son. Who are we talking about? Who is He? What is He like? Now, we are eager to hear the content of what God has revealed. In these last days, he has spoken definitively in the Son. We want to know, well, what did he say? What is this final revelation? That's where he's going to get to. He's going to show us that in the whole book of Hebrews. But before he does that, there's something more foundational. Who is this Son that brings, that is the final revelation? That's the foundation. So that's what he gives us next. He's not merely another prophet. Just a little bit better than Moses. He's not another angel. He is, what he's going to show, he is the eternal, incarnate, exalted son. That's who he is. Our author is going to list seven attributes, characteristics of the son. Really remarkable. It's really packed. All of these are worth spending a Sunday on. We won't, because some of the, he's going to develop these. He's just listing them here, these seven, so we get a glimpse of who the Son is. Oh, I, I want us to see him and marvel at the Son. That's what our author does right here at the beginning. So, my title, The Grandeur of the Son. That's what he's showing, the grandeur, the superiority of the Son, the magnificence of the Son. Who is this Jesus that we read about earlier being crucified on a cross? Who is He? What does He say? Now, I said He lists seven attributes, but really He doesn't just list attributes, like here's just seven things. These attributes are found in a specific structure with an intended sequence and connection. The structure he gives is kind of this, we call it a chiasm, a chiastic structure. You don't need to really worry about that. He's just, he groups things. And so, instead of just listing seven things, I want us to, to group them and look at them under these three headings. And you'll see under each heading, there's two parallel statements. I think that's how he meant to write this. So, we'll see three headings, and each of those headings will have two two specific statements about the Son. So let's, let's look at them. Who is this Son? The grandeur of the Son. Here's the first heading. Number one, His enthronement. 
his enthronement. The son's enthronement. Now, this past summer, we got to witness the coronation of King Charles III. I don't know if you watched that or if you're interested in British politics and pageantry, but this great, it was filled with pomp and pageantry of the coronation, we call it, of King Charles III, and it's when he takes, we'd say, the throne. He becomes king. He takes the throne. He has the scepter, right? He has the crown, and he sits on the throne. doesn't mean a whole lot in England now, today. It's a little more symbolic, but that's the idea here. The son has taken the throne. His enthronement, that's what we mean, his, his taking this place of highest honor and preeminence. Now, let me show you here in the text the, the two phrases. He's going to start with this, and he's going to end with this in this sevenfold description. So he says, verse 2, look there again. So you follow me in the text. You have to see these. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, and now he's going to start giving attributes of the son. Whom... Referring to the Son, whom He, God, appointed, here's the first one, heir of all things. So God appoints Him heir, it's part of this enthronement, and then go all the way down, the end of verse 3, this is how He ends. And He sat down, after making purifications, or by means of making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's His enthronement. So those two statements are talking about the same thing. They go together. He is appointed heir, and he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here's the first one. He is appointed heir. As the exalted son, he receives all things as his inheritance. He receives all things as his inheritance. He is appointed heir. The sons, sons receive inheritance, don't they? In the biblical world, the inheritance is passed through the son, and so it is right that the son is appointed heir of all things. Now, we might ask, well, why does he start here? If you're, if you're just going to list seven attributes about the son, you'd think he would start back eternally, as we'll see, preexistence and creation. Why does he start here? Because this is his central theme and ultimate concern in this letter. The unsurpassed value of this inheritance secured in Christ awaits the persevering people of God through the Son. This inheritance, this is what he's going to Exhort us to press on towards. Don't, don't give up. Hold fast. The promise is coming. Your inheritance is coming. Christ has secured it. So this is where he's starting because this is his chief concern. He doesn't start with creation because the goal of creation is this inheritance. So he starts here. He is appointed heir of all things. This inheritance is the logical outcome of sonship. If he's the son, he is the heir, and God appoints him heir. So he's entering 
the fulfillment of his sonship here. Now, the writer has definitely Old Testament allusions all through the book. He does this Old Testament allusions in mind, specifically here, Psalm 2, which he's going to quote here in a few verses. In fact, you'll see it a few times in the book of Hebrews. It becomes one of these important Old Testament psalms. Psalm 2 is where God installs his king, his king, and he says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. That's the inheritance he has now given to the Son. He has fulfilled that. He has become the one who owns it all, who is the heir of all things. And again, notice how comprehensive. What is his inheritance? It's everything. Everything is his inheritance. That's the son. Now, we'll see as we go through the book of Hebrews, I said that that becomes really relevant for us because we're going to share in this inheritance. He secured it. He's the heir. He secured it for you and for me, and he wants us to press on and enter this inheritance. So we'll we'll see that as we go. But, But notice the second phrase, the one at the end. So he begins with that and then ends with, he sat down which is one of the main verbs in this thing. This, this really is the climax of the prologue. He's been building to this. He, after he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down by means of his atoning work, it's this purification of sins, he has taken the place of ultimate authority over all things. By means of his atoning work, his purification, he has taken the place of ultimate authority, or we could say preeminence and ultimate authority over all things. Now, again, this is a clear allusion to Psalm 110, another psalm. Psalm 110 is the key psalm for the book of Hebrews. In some ways, the book of Hebrews is really just an exposition of Psalm 110 and how it fits into the whole Bible story and gets us to Christ. And that's the psalm that David hears Yahweh speaking to the Messiah, saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's going to quote that often. But here's an allusion to it. He sat at the right hand. Now, the right hand of God is the place of greatest authority. That's the imagery here. That means he shares God's power without limitation. He is seated there. It's not a second throne, a little bit below the the throne. It's an extension of the one throne, and he has the place of highest honor, preeminence, and authority at the right hand of the... Notice what he calls God here. The right hand of the majesty on high. You see that? That's a description of God. The right hand of the majesty on high. He's emphasizing the exaltation of God. Don't forget who he is. He's the majesty on high. And by extension, the supreme greatness of the son's position. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Don't forget who he is. We're asking this question. We're singing it this morning. Who can approach his throne Who can approach the majesty on high? 
and live. No one. No one. We dare not approach the majesty on high without the presence of the Son. Oh, the writer of Hebrews wants to show us through this that it is the Son who has secured our access before this throne, the majesty on high. We'll get there. He sat down. Now that sitting down, again, will have a double implication in the book of Hebrews. It means, certainly, he has taken his position of authority, of preeminence. He's been enthroned, but it will also mean he sat down. He has finished his atoning work. His sin-purifying work is finished. Do you see the connection there? Again, look back there at verse 3, how he puts it together. He says, having made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. This sitting follows his work of purifying sin. That's his great redeeming work that the writer of Hebrews is going to make so much of. So I'm not going to say much here because he's going to develop this in many chapters, how the Son makes purification for all sin. And he does by the sacrifice of himself. That's what we read in John 19 as he's, Frank pointed us to it, as he is Dying on the cross, he is making, in the greatest of irony, purification for our sins. So we'll see how he does that. But it's on the completion of making purification for sins that he sits down. His work is done. That's the implication. It's finished. Nothing else needs to be done. Oh, the writer will make much of this. It's by means of his purification that he takes the throne. His enthronement and his atoning work are inseparable. It's complete. That's why, again, as we go through the book of Hebrews, he's going to exhort us you can draw near to God with full assurance that your sins are done away with. Christ is seated there at the right hand, it is finished. He's made purification. You can have this full assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. I, I pray this morning you do, that you're enjoying this. You have full assurance of your acceptance, as we sing, acceptance from a good and gracious king. Not because you think, well, I'm not too bad. I've, I've tried to do pretty good. No, but because you're basing it all on what Christ has done. He's taken it away, and there he is seated there. And as long as he is seated there, I am forever secure. So, that's the first heading, his enthronement. Second heading, his relation to creation. So again, another pair. So, the first one, enthronement, was the first and last. And now we're going to go in to, and we're going to see the second and the second to last here. These are parallel. This is a very intentional structure. His relation to creation. There are two things. First, the agent of creation. Through him, God made the universe. The agent. He's the agent of creation. Through him, God made the universe. So look there again in verse 2. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom, again the Son, 
He, God, made the world. <laughs> oh, by the way, he actually made the world, the universe, the sun did. That's astounding. It's like he just throws that in. He's the heir of all things through whom God made the world. He's the agent of creation. <laughs> so we know we're not talking about an ordinary person. He's not merely a, a prophet who's a slightly better than Moses. This is a completely different category. In fact, it's a divine category. Creation is the exclusive work of God that he shares with no one. It is a divine action never attributed to any creature. But here... God's agent of creation is the Son. Now, this is, this is the consistent testimony of the New Testament about who this Son is. John, the Gospel of John, starts in a very similar way with his prologue when he gives that really profound sentence when he says, in the beginning, in the beginning, it takes you back to creation, Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from Him. This Word, the Son. Paul, same testimony in Colossians, referring to the Son as the image of the invisible God, for by him, the Son, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That's who we're talking about. The Son, he's the agent of creation. By clear implication, the Son is not created. He is, we call it, pre-existence. His existence predates creation. There was a, a beginning, and whenever that beginning was, the Word was there. Everything that is created, everything that is created came through the sun. The sun is exempt. The sun is not created. So we are in a whole different category here of this nature, this being who is eternal as God. Did you know that God made the world through the sun? There's a sad, sad statement in that chapter I'm quoting, John chapter 1, where he talks about him being the creator, where he says, of this son, the, the word, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He made you all things, and the world didn't know him. Amazing. Oh, I pray you know him. He made you. He's the agent of creation, but also, second, the upholder of creation. 
the upholder of creation. He sustains and directs all things to their God-intended goal. So here's the parallel statement. Now, the second to last. Look at it in verse 3, then right in the middle. He says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. He not only is the agent of creation, that is how all things came into being, but presently he is sustaining all of creation to its God-intended end or goal. And he is doing that by his powerful word. That same word that spoke the universe into existence out of nothing is that same powerful word that right now is sustaining the universe and directing it towards its end. That's, that's the idea of upholding, bearing. He's upholding so it doesn't fall, so to speak, and directing. Not just holding it, but directing it to its intended end. That's a profound thing. Did you know this about the sun? That right now, your very existence, in my very existence, is dependent on his powerful word. Everything that's existing is dependent on him. Can you imagine? It's hard for us to grasp. The created world is dependent on his will for its functioning and its preservation. So that, you know, in, in this community, our, our community here, we, we know a lot about physical properties, molecular structures, how things adhere and hold together, and even how to break them apart with great effectiveness. We know a lot about that, and it's so easy for us just to fall into this materialistic worldview that all that there is is just this matter, which you can see and feel and observe. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's something so much more foundational than any of this. And it is the Son holding it all together. In fact, that's the language of Colossians 1. Paul, similar thoughts as he holds in him all things hold together. So he's preserving creation by the word of his power, but not just preserving it. He's, he's bringing it to its intended goal. And in this context, that goal ultimately is the exaltation of the Son. That's what the whole thing is about. The whole universe, all of creation is this goal. And he's the one who made it. He's the agent, and he's the one upholding it and bringing it to this end in which he is exalted as Son. Third, last heading, his relation to God. So we move from his relation to creation to his relation to God. Now, what is implied about his divine nature in the previous statements, creation, sustaining, is now made very explicit. Very explicit. And we come to, this is the center part of the the pairing. (laughs) We've gone from the First and last in one. Now we're right at the heart of it. Because this is the heart of the description of the Son as the final definitive revelation of God. Why is the final revelation of God in the Son? Because of who he is. Who is he in relation to God? Do you see the two statements? 
They begin verse 3. Let me just read them both. Literally, let me read them. Who, being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. You really can't say it any better or clearer who he is. So, so let me give these statements in an interpretive way. The sun is the outshining of who God really is. He's the outshining, the radiance of who God really is. He's the, he manifests the glory of God. You have glory. That's God in his essential being the manifestation of God and all of his attributes, the glory of God and the radiance of that glory is the sun. He, he radiates from the source. It's like the best illustration that others have used, and I think it's really good, is the sun in our sky, S-U-N, and its rays, sunlight, what we see. That's really a good illustration of the relation of the Son of God to God the Father. The rays of the sun, what we feel and what we see, is an extension of the sun. It takes about eight minutes, doesn't it, to, to arrive here? From 90, is it 93 million miles away, long ways away, that we see. We see the sun by means of seeing its rays. But those rays are not a different substance than the sun. It's a good analogy. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance is the glory radiating out. It's not something different, but it's the way you see. It's the manifestation of God. That's who the sun is. That's really amazing. Second description there. The sun is a perfect imprint of the very being of God. So the sun is the outshining of who God really is, and he's the perfect imprint of the very being of God. So he gives these two descriptions. He's the exact representation of his nature. He's the exact perfect imprint. That word there, we actually get our word character from this Greek word here. It's just the impression that was made by a dye onto a clay or a coin to represent as an exact representation. The sun is the perfect imprint, representation of the very nature, being of God. So this sun is not merely, not merely the image of God like we are as human beings. We thought about that in our series on men and women, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. But this is something unique. He's not just a kind of, he's not like God in certain attributes. No, he's the exact imprint of the very nature of God. God's very essential being. Hmm. So that the Son shares in the divine nature and exactly displays God. He's the radiance of his glory, the manifestation of God, because he is the exact representation of his nature. Now, we are here, we're straining at the very limits of human language to try to describe the Son. 
to try to say carefully, he is distinct from God, when we say God the Father, and yet of the very same being. And this is the great way to say it. I quoted John chapter 1 earlier. That's what John's doing in that just profound statement as how he starts his gospel. As I said, in the beginning was the Word. He's referring to the Son. It was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't be bold. You can be with God and be God. Yeah, you can. The word, it, it goes beyond our comprehension. We're, we're pressed. Our language fails us. That the sun is distinct. He's the radiance of the glory, but he's the exact being of the nature of God. So, so I hope what you see here, these are the foundations of our, what we call now this doctrine of the Trinity. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit yet in this. Here's just what we'll call Father and Son, because Son language is used here. That's where we come. It wasn't just smart guys in the fourth century that came up with some novel thing about God. We're just pressed with these kind of texts to say, well, who is the Son? Well, he's of the very same nature of God, the eternal nature of God. So that's who he is. So there he is. Why is he? the final climactic revelation because of who he is. He's the heir of all things who has taken his seat at the right hand of God. He's the one through whom God made the world and he's bearing it up right now to its end and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation so that if you see the sun, you see God. The very being of God. So here's my summary of that point. Of that just last point. What is essential, what God essentially is, is manifest in the Son. That's what he's trying to say. What God essentially is, is manifest in the Son. There is no greater revelation of God. Because he is God in the flesh. Now, It's really staggering. It's overwhelming. He's going to develop some of these things, but there he is. Let me me finish. I just want to to connect the dots here. I said these, these, he doesn't just list seven descriptions, but he's connecting them. If you you look back at verse 3, here's here's the sequence I want you to see, because it will be so important to his whole book here, his whole sermon. Verse 3, he says, he uses this participle, he says, who being the radiance of the glory and the exact representation. Who being. He's, he's referring to the timeless nature of the Son. This is who he, This is not what he becomes. This is who he is. Being. He's been this from eternity. There's no time when he wasn't the radiance of the glory and the exact representation. And yet, what the writer is arguing is this Son, this one who's always been this exact at a point in time, took the throne. At a point in time, became heir, received the inheritance. At a point in time, made purification, and then sat down. So how do you connect those? Here's how you connect them, I think. I know this stretches us here a little bit, but the eternal son, 
to the exalted son. That's what, he's, that's what he's showing us here. Who is the exalted son? Well, he's the eternal son. The eternal son to the exalted son. Here's, here's one line description, and we'll have to just see this through the book. What the son has been from all eternity comes to fruition and full expression in his exaltation as high priest. What he has been from all eternity comes to its fulfilled, fullest expression as he takes the throne and sits as ultimately our high priest. One commentator put it this way. Although Jesus was the preexistent son of God, he entered into a new dimension in the experience of sonship by virtue of his incarnation, his sacrificial death, and his subsequent exaltation. The eternal son is the exalted son, and this has been the purpose of God from eternity and through all of creation, is that the eternal son would be the exalted son as our high priest. That's the story of the universe, of God's plan, and we can behold it. We can behold him. Do you know him, this son? Do you know him as the son, who he is? Remember our purpose or our author's pastoral purpose. He wants to impress on us the unsurpassed greatness of the son as this final climactic revelation of God so that we would hold fast to him. He's going to say in chapter 2, verse 1, as he builds this argument, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. We can't neglect so great a salvation. Do you know him? Have you beheld it? Do you see it? Are you clinging to it? That's what our author writes. May you cherish the son. Adore him. Find him to be your only refuge and security. Are you resting in him? Let me pray for us. We're just going to keep going and seeing the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus in these weeks to come. But let me pray for us that way as we close. Oh, Father, again, help us to see what you said about your son. His magnificence, his superiority, the completeness of his work, that he is king And he is high priest for us. Oh, may we draw near to you and not let go because of Christ. Thank you. Thank you for the precious gift of your son. We thank you in his name.